Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to expand consciousness, stimulate thought, enhance mental and physical health, and encourage community. Today, we have with us Father Sean O'Laddy, spelled O-L-A-O-I-R-E. Again, O-L-A-O-I-R-E, Father Sean O'Laddy, who is a Catholic priest, uh, former. He will tell you more about that. He's also a doctor of clinical psychology. Um, he has written quite a few books. I, uh, I hope you'll go to Google and uh, look him up. Uh, one of the books is called Why, What Your Life is Telling You About Who You Are and Why You're Here. He wrote that, by the way, with uh, Matthew McKay and Ralph Metzner. Some of you might remember the name Ralph Metzner because he was associated with Leary and Alpert. It was Leary, Alpert, and Metzner who uh, brought us a great deal of information about LSD in the 60s, and Ralph has been a uh, researcher ever since. Um, Father Olari, are you with us? I'm here, Richard. Good morning to you. Good morning to you. We have an interesting uh, opportunity here uh, that I I want to bring your attention to, which is a uh, a listener called in with an interesting story about his life, which may have some relevance to our interview today. So I want to bring him on and give him a brief couple of minutes to tell his story while you and I and all our listeners can listen in. Brian, are you with Uh, us? I'm with you. Okay. Briefly, summarize your story for us, Brian. Okay, a year and a half ago, well, I, I back in uh, December of 2010, a doctor noticed I had a low white blood cell count, and so we've been following it for four years. It wasn't so severe that it required me to go to a cancer specialist, but finally with Obamacare coming in, it was possible for me to do that. So I went to one. They identified a chrome, uh, can- cancer problem, and they called it T-cell large granular lymphocyte leukemia. So I then um, went on a vegan diet, and uh, over the course of the last year and a half, I've been vegan. I've gotten better and better at it because any diet change makes a lot of, it's very challenging to change your diet when you're used to things. But anyway, six months ago when I got my blood work back, my blood work was as healthy as it had been four and a half years ago. And then just a few days ago, it was as healthy as it was 12 years ago. And so I'm just totally excited about um, this vegan diet. Um, Other things have changed. My blood pressure dropped from 140 over 80, which it consistently had been for years and years and years, down to 110 over 70 now. Uh, I had had sinus congestion, you know, all the time, and I'm a singer by profession, and that sinus congestion is gone because of this diet. So um, anyway, that's basically it. I'm a spouser of vegan diets. I'm, I don't claim that they heal cancer. I'm just one person, and time will tell whether this is going to continue to be a problem or not. But for right now, my blood work looks amazing. Brian, thank you so much for calling in with this. Sean, what are your comments yes. on this? Firstly, congratulations to you, Brian. I'm really, really happy for you. It's been... It, uh, it's exactly what I believe about the illnesses. I created a formula as a mathematician that illness has six components. And the first one is kind of genetic predisposition. So particular, you know, ethnic groups or family systems, 
have, will have a predisposition to one illness or the other. The second factor for me is environmental influence, including everything from the in utero experience of a little developing fetus to your school systems, uh, the environment in which you live, the family dynamic. The third factor is personal lifestyle. The fourth factor is personal belief systems because the mind is very, very powerful. The fifth factor, I believe, is karma that we bring lessons over several lifetimes, sometimes involving illnesses of various kinds. And the sixth one I call the Bodhisattva dimension, which is the Bodhisattva in Buddhism is a vow that a person's soul makes to keep reincarnating until everybody wakes up. So I think all illnesses have these six factors. Now, the first two factors, genetics or environment, science can kind of contend with. But the next two factors, personal belief system and personal lifestyle, are totally under our own control. And I have an exercise that I do with my clients where if they have a particular illness, I ask them to estimate what percentage is due to each one of these factors. And I tell them whatever is due to um, lifestyle or belief system, you've got total control over. And so I'm really happy to hear, Brian, that you took absolute control over your diet with extraordinary results. Good for you, buddy. Just briefly, Sean, let's review uh, for our listeners those six components. Genetic, see if I have it right here. Genetic, environment, lifestyle, belief, karma, and the bodhisattva. Right. So let me, let me expand on those a little bit. Please. Um, yeah, sure. So I think that um, when you look at a family system, every system has a weak point. You know, whether it's a physical predisposition or a psychological predisposition. So different ethnic groups have different kinds of predispositions. Uh, different uh, families tend to have maybe cancer runs in the group or heart disease or strokes. And so in this, that, that's a factor. It may only be 2% or 5% depending on the individual person. The second one is the environment in which a baby was conceived and carried and birthed and educated. And so that we're... The environment itself has a tremendous impact on whatever illnesses are going to manifest. You're talking Thirdly, about you're talking about here the in utero environment. Am I correct? I'm talking about both the in utero environment and the subsequent environment in which the child is raised. Okay. Everything with school systems and infrastructure and you know, the diet that the, the family is on, uh, all the environmental influences uh, during and after uh, uh, the fetal development. It so may, the, uh, it may not be. Record. Yes, excuse me. You know, it may not be in our lifetime. But one of our uh, guests on this program, Bruce Lipton, who wrote the book uh, "Biology of Belief," is uh, is leading the way towards actually using the mind towards influencing our genetic architecture. So even number one may eventually come under our control. Absolutely, and I love uh, Bruce Lipton's work. He's a very dynamic speaker, and he's real. Adventure and so his own his own theory of epigenesis I think is really really important and so that's where the mind comes in so in some senses the personal belief systems which is factor number four is hugely dependent on epigenetics and as Bruce Lipton points out very powerfully perhaps only five percent of all illnesses are of genetic origin ninety five percent are coming from other other sources hmm. and it's it's the mindset and the lifestyle that determine the expression of the genes. As he points out, like, you know, genes are just like a blueprint. If I want to build a house, I can go to an architect's office, 
There's a whole bunch of blueprints. I can choose what I want, and I can modify what I take. I don't even have to accept, you know, totally the blueprint I want to work with. I can change the position of the window. I put a door where I want it. That's so epigenesis is the realization that it is what you do with the blueprint that determines the, gonna, the house you're going to be living in. A tremendously, a tremendously important concept for all of us that you're talking about here. It really is. It's the, it's the, it's the ability to be able to take the blueprint that we were dealt when we were born and actually modify it. Absolutely, absolutely. And so that's my definition of karma. Then, which is number five, Richard. That you know, people think that karma is this weird system whereby we're punished in subsequent incarnations for mistakes we made in previous incarnations. I don't believe that's true at all. Karma for me is the realization that we pre-plan a lifetime, including the people who will be important to us, the kind of body I'm going to inhabit, the period of human history I'm going to be born into. And so for me, karma is the realization that I got exactly the hand I plan to have because of the lessons I'm intending to learn in my lifetime. But karma is the invitation to live a lifetime that allows me to experience love and to radiate love to everybody in my vicinity. So I get the, I get the hand I planned. I don't wake up in the morning and say, I can't believe you know, how unlucky I was that I, I was born into this body or this family or this culture or this time. I pre-planned all of those because I wanted to learn how to love in all possible configurations. So to, to that extent then, Sean, it sounds like what you're saying to us is by planning, we can actually start planning a whole new existence right now for later today, tomorrow, and any future that we may have. Absolutely. The present moment is the father and mother of the future. We are, not, we are not stuck. We're not stuck in, in cement with what we have or what we've been dealt. No, absolutely. What sticks us is the stories we tell ourselves. I'm threatening to put a sign on my office door in my psychology practice that says, change the story. Because there's a huge difference between, the Buddha said very famously 2,500 years ago, he said, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. Mm-hmm. And the difference between pain and suffering is, pain is the price of incarnation. We're born into a planet where there's tsunamis and there's earthquakes and into bodies that age and, you know, get ill at some times. That's pain. Suffering is the stories we make up about the experiences we're having. And my experience as a clinical psychologist, I would say 95% of human discomfort is the result of the stories we're telling ourselves about the situations we're experiencing. So if you change the story, that's epigenesis right there. By changing the story, you epigenetically determine how you're going to express your experiences in a healthy way or an unhealthy fashion. Mm. I, I told a friend that, that uh, you were going to be our distinguished guest on this radio program today. And my friend said, oh, yes, I've heard about him. He's a famous mystic. So, <laughs> so I, decided to, I decided to look up the word mystic. And, I, and, and here's a definition that I found of mystic, and I, I'd like your take on it. A, a mystic is a person who seeks by contemplation and self-surrender to obtain unity with or absorption into the deity or the absolute, or who believes in the spiritual apprehension of truths that are beyond the intellect. That is powerful. That's really, really, really beautiful. 
because I think human evolution, Richard, is headed in, you know, why would human evolution start with, stop with the development of, you know, homo sapiens sapiens with our ability to think rationally? Why would it stop there? It hasn't stopped for 3.7 billion years. So there are two more phases that come after homo sapiens sapiens, and I call one homo spiritualis. It is going transrational. And by transrational, I don't mean that we abandon rationality, but that we incorporate and go beyond in the same fashion in which a tree, as it's growing, doesn't abandon its root system. As it develops a trunk and branches, it takes everything with it. So we take rationality with us, but we need to go transrational. There are aspects of the human being, our soul or our spirit, that give us information at an intuitive level. And so we can use our reason. We need to go transrational. Yes, Excuse me. Yes, well, I often think that that when we do that, when we go we go transrational, that's when we begin for the first time to understand that our rationality is a tool but for us to use, but it isn't the boss. Absolutely, absolutely. Because actually, you know, the the thinking component, this thing we call our mind or some refer to as our computer, it tries to be the boss. A lot of people think that they are the object of their thoughts, that the thoughts just come into their mind and that they don't have any control about what the nature of the thoughts are. They don't know how to yet change the channel and realize that this thought machine that we have is our machine. It isn't us. Exactly. You're absolutely dead on so I think that every, every organism has two kinds of intelligence. There's the native intelligence of the organism itself. So you take, you take a, a flower, and a flower has a native intelligence that allows it to orient towards the sun, you know, to photosynthesis, extract chlorophyll, to draw nutrients from the soil. So there's an intelligence that allows it to survive in an environment. But then every organism also, I believe, has a soul that takes up occupancy of the physical space and that brings in a different kind of intelligence. Now, the intelligence of the um, organism itself is the intelligence of survival and kind of trying to grab resources in a competitive fashion, and that's the ego. But the, uh, the intelligence of the soul is the intelligence of a unity consciousness, that everything that exists is a bite-sized piece of God. No, we're like rays from the sun. You can't separate a ray of sunshine from the sun. They belong to each other, and you can't separate a soul from source. But when you, uh, when you agree to incarnation, you agree to some kind of collaboration between the intelligence of the organism, which is the ego, and the intelligence of the soul, which is spirit. And it, it's a battle. And it, so uh, as long as the ego knows it's the servant of the self, there's no problem. When the ego believes it's the master of the self, we get big problems. I'm envisioning as you're talking what my daily life would be like if every time I meet a fellow being, I immediately say to myself, this is another bite-sized piece of God, and this is part of myself that I'm encountering. Sean, I want to read uh, something from one of your books Uh, because it's relevant to what's going on in our political world right now with the uh, presidential campaigns that are going on. This is from A Sensible God by Father Sean O'Leary, Ph.D. clinical psychologist. He writes, In summary, our world is being beggared by leaders who have promoted themselves or cheated their way into power. They are making violent decisions that punish both the perceived enemy abroad 
and the citizens at home who allegedly elected them. They claim divine authority and guidance for their megalomaniacal and old boy network decisions, suppressing all evidence that clearly shows the inanity of their policies. They use media malleable outlets to feed us their version of the glorious victories being achieved, victories, however, which are never so decisive and final that we can afford to relax our vigilance or end our warmongering. Those are strong words about the leadership in our country and in other countries around the world, Sean. Please elaborate. Please elaborate for us. Sure, sure. Um, and so I, I was saying a little bit earlier, Richard, that I believe that there are, there are two kinds of intelligence in any organism. There's the innate intelligence of just the, uh, the physical organism itself, and then there's the soul that comes in. And the struggle is, or the dance should be, between the ego and the soul. So I think that I, I'm not decrying the ego. Without the ego, we couldn't tie our shoelaces, you know, or stop at red lights. And so it, it is the ego that affords the soul the opportunity of incarnation and learning to live in limited circumstances. Anybody can live if things can love, if the situation is a loving situation. Learning to love when it's a difficult situation, then that's more difficult. Mm. And so by incarnating, the soul tests itself in a whole uh, bunch of different configurations to find out if I found myself in such a situation, could I love anyway? If I were, you know, a slave girl in North Africa in the 1300s, could I love anyway? If I were, a, a, you know, an IT specialist in Silicon Valley in 2015, could I love anyway? If I were a multi-billionaire, could I love anyway? And so the ego and the soul are in a dance to afford the, them the ability to learn how to love in all circumstances. Mm-hmm. However, when the ego is out of balance and thinks it's in charge, we get all kinds of greed and all kinds of, you know, anxieties. Now, I believe there are two kinds of ego. There's the ego of the individual, and there's the ego of the cabal that uh, takes control over the community, whether that's, you know, community is local government or it's international politics. There's always a cabal, there's a, uh, the ego of an oligarchy, you know, who takes control over a population and imposes its own will on it. In somehow in the belief system that they have the right to govern, you know, and so that, that is the most dangerous ego of all, the ego of an oligarchy. And unless the, the rest of us wake up and realize that we're all bite-sized pieces of God, that nobody is in, uh, innately more important than anybody else, I say, in fact, that all manifestations is of equal importance. And this is, may sound heretical to the Christians and the Catholics out there. I don't think that a banana slug is any less beautiful in God's eyes than was Jesus Christ. Everything is a bite-sized piece of God. The difference between a banana slug and Jesus is that a banana slug has very little self-awareness. Jesus Christ is totally self-realized. And so he knows that he's the Son of God, and he knows that everything else is the Son of God. And so uh, it's a waking up to the realization that everything around us is a manifestation of the divine. And that's what Hinduism means by this beautiful statement, Namaste. The divine in me recognizes and honors the divine in you. So I had this really powerful vision maybe 15 years ago where I saw a great soul stand in front of source or in front of God and volunteer for incarnation. And there was this one great soul, uh, Mahatma, that I'm going to call it Gaia, which is the Greek name for the earth, stand in front of God and say, 
I, I volunteer to animate the third rock from the sun in that solar system, and I'm going to breathe life until I throw up a life form which is capable of recognizing its own divinity, and it's the fact of the divinity of all other manifestations. And I think we're on the brink of that. With the, the advent of Homo sapiens sapiens, we have a species which is on the brink of recognizing both its own divinity and the divinity of all other life forms. When we get to that place, there's no oligarchy anymore, there's no hierarchy anymore, there's no gender differentiation, there's no racism, there's no ageism. But that has to come, you know, through people waking, waking up. So the primary virtue, I don't think actually is love. The primary virtue is being awake. Mm. If I'm not awake, what I think is love is just mawkish sentimentality. Mm. And that is why Gautama Siddhartha would famously call himself the Buddha. Buddha just really means the one who is awake. And you look at the parables of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has 46 parables in the New Testament. And the biggest group we have to do with the notion of being awake. He would say stuff like, if the householder knew at what stage the thief was going to break in and steal, he wouldn't go to sleep. He'd stay awake. So the primary virtue is being awake. So that's why I love what you're doing, Richard, and what other people are doing, trying to wake people up to the realization of their own divinity. When people realize they're bite-sized pieces of God, nobody has control of us anymore. We have sad news, though, on that line at the same time, Sean. Very sad news right now, and that is that the death rate for middle-aged white Americans is rising. And it was a startling report uh, that just came out uh, yesterday or the day before. And it it was brought to us by a Nobel Prize winning scientist. And what he is saying, and, and, and more than saying, he's saying we have actual data that mortality uh, that comes from the Center for Disease Control is saying that the annual death rate amongst white, middle-aged Americans is increasing, but it's not coming from heart disease, diabetes, and cancer, as we previously thought. It's coming from suicide from suicide and from afflictions coming from substance abuse and alcohol, liver disease, overdoses of heroin and prescription opioids. In other words, Sean, what we're being told is that white middle class Americans are so suffering from the soul, so suffering in their consciousness that they're basically killing themselves in increasing numbers. Yes. Yeah, that's really, really sad news, Richard. And my my take on it is that, in some senses, maybe these are the kind of the um, the these are the commanders on the beach waking the rest of us up to the realization that we've created a world system, economic models, military-industrial complex, a prison system which has gone private. You know, where people are being lulled into a, a kind of a soporific effect through you know the old. The old statement in Rome now goes, bread and circuses. It might not be pizza and, you know, Thursday night football. Instead of waking up to the realization that we're here on mission. Mm-hmm. And it's a threefold mission. Every soul that comes in is, you know, is signing up for three missions. Firstly, to wake myself up. Secondly, to help wake others up. And thirdly, to create 
Christ consciousness, our Buddha nature on the planet itself. Mm -hmm. I love the way you're putting that, and I hope every listener, all six of you, can hear what he's saying, that these people who are dying, they they are frontline commandos waking us up by their very dying. Sean, I'm going to offer you another quote from yourself yeah. where you say sure. we, can, we can no longer afford to unpack religious experiences along tribalistic lines that give allegiance to partisan gods. The time has come when all religious experiences need to be unpacked along global lines that give allegiance to a cosmic god. Elaborate for us, please. Right, so when, when you look at the... We're a very young species, Richard, when you think you're cosmically. The cosmos is 13.7 billion years of age. I personally believe that this is only one of, uh, you know, a whole bunch of cosmoses, that there may be a meta-universe someplace. But this little universe of ours is 13.7. Planet Earth itself is only 4.6 billion years of age. On planet Earth, you know, Homo sapiens sapiens is about 50,000 years of age. And so in that tiny little speck of cosmic time, this little species has moved from, you know, trying to make sense of our environment, and so we create a polytheistic notion that there are warring gods in the sky, and we're kind of uh, caught in the crossfire between them in their displaced anger. And then we've created, you know, at some stage we created what I call portfolio gods. So there's, you want to make war, this is the god you need to follow. You want to make love, this is the guy you need to follow. You're interested in agriculture, here's the guy you need to kind of take charge of. And then we created kind of a, a regional divinities. You know, you move into a particular part of real estate on earth. You have to pay, pay obedience to this particular God. And then we had tribal divinities who wandered around the desert with their chosen group. You know, and then we, we collapsed all these divinities down to two gods under Zoroastrianism, a god of light and a god of dark called Ahuru Mazda and Ahriman. And then finally they get collapsed down to... A single God, but this one God was a distant demanding deity who beat the crap out of us on the last basis because of, you know, infractions in his, of his injunctions. We, Christ and the great, uh, the great avatars went away, way beyond that. And Christ is talking about, he said, people who say, there's the kingdom of God, or there's the kingdom of God. He said, the kingdom of God, and he uses a great a Greek phrase, the kingdom of God is enmasoi. And enmasoi means within you or among you. And so we're coming to the realization at this stage that the future of spirituality lies in recognizing the God in other people or the God inside the self. And so we have to leave completely these tribal affiliations, you know, based on kind of ridiculous notions where we, the gods were literally just human beings writ large to the realization that we're talking about source, ultimate source, which is ineffable. It can be experienced, but it cannot be articulated. And so the difference between the, the mystic and the theologian is that the theologian attempts to tell you what God had for breakfast, and the mystic tells you, you can say nothing about God mm. except experience her. And mm. once you experience God, you don't need to say anything. <clears throat> you use the word, and in, in, uh, Ryan, were you going to say something? Oh, I was just going to comment on this very interesting fact that uh, Father Sean just called God her. I, I find this a imp- kind of a crucial part of his teachings and I couldn't help but just be like, oh, could we talk about that for a moment, please? Okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just a I moment. Because we've created this notion that God is this kind of uh, bearded divinity. In fact, in the Christian dispensation, it's three males. There was a kind of a bearded divinity that we call the Father, 
and there's a crucified son that we call Jesus, and then there's a pigeon that we call the Holy Spirit. Now, and we have this ludicrous notion that we can kind of, uh, you know, tell what God is or what God had for breakfast. And so, very typically, in, since patriarchal times, God has been referred to with male pronouns. So long as I balance the equation, I throw in, you know, female pronouns. But I realize completely that God does not have gender. In fact, you can't ascribe any characteristic at all to God. The mystics say, you know, they use a special kind of language which is called uh, apophatic language. They say X. No, God is not X. Y. No, God is not Y. Z. God is not Z. So you can't say what God is. You can only say what God is not. And by you know, eschewing rationality, you back yourselves into the transrational. And this is what Zen Buddhism does with their koans. They, pr- they produce these, you know, they offer these extraordinary kinds of conundrums like, what is the sound of one hand clapping? There is no rational answer to that. Because Zen Buddhism is trying to take you beyond reason into a soul experience, not a mental kind of experience, but a soul experience. That's why I'm using female pronouns to kind of just put the cat among the pigeons and get people thinking outside the little narrow boxes of human kind of thought forms and categories. Mm. Some people listening to this are saying that all sounds sounds outstanding. It sounds something I, I could sign on for. But what are we going to do about the socioeconomic stratification in this country that is the greatest, perhaps, socioeconomic stratification in all of recorded history? You yourself, earlier in this program, used the word oligarchy. What are we going to do about this? Because I think, Sean, that part of what these people that you call commandos, these middle-aged white Americans who are dying from heroin and opioids and alcohol and substance abuse— I, I think part of, 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 of what they're saying with their deaths is that they can't take it anymore. I totally get it, Richard. And we've attempted, and we have attempted throughout human history, to improve our systems, our models, our economic models. Our kind of, but no matter how much you try to tweak the system or the model, as long as it's staffed by people who are themselves not enlightened or even awake, it, uh, they will corrupt the systems. So the very same people who are, you know, uh, uh, changing the systems are the people who own the systems. The very same people who are legislating laws are also interpreting the laws and enforcing the laws. So there's no separation anymore. You know, there are no checks and balances. So no matter how much you try to change the system, as long as there's a cabal that's able to, you know, know, tweak the system, you know, change the system, corrupt the system, systems won't work. The only solution is people have to wake up as individual persons, they have to come awake. And when you get an awake population, it is impossible to hoodwink them. But as long as you just keep tampering with the systems, and as long as the people in the systems are asleep, you know, the systems can be corrupted very, very quickly. Can we, so it's about, can uh, we help each push. other? Can we help each other to wake up? Can, as, I'm, as I'm working to wake up, can I, can I talk to friends can we wake up together? Is there something to be said for, for, for group awakening in neighborhoods, in, in, in community centers? Yeah, totally. So, for, as I say, there are three kind of kinds of awakening we sign up for. Personal awakening, awakening those around me, you know, through dialogue, and then awakening the global consciousness in some ways. But the interesting thing is, if you achieve any one of these, you're achieving all three of them. If I am really awake and I'm radiating an energy, which is very, very different from the energy I radiate if I'm asleep. 
So the, the energy radiated by one being who's totally awake is totally disproportionate to the numbers involved. It's the quality of the awakened and the quality of the awareness is much better, it's much more important than the number of people who happen to be asleep. So one avatar, like a Buddha figure or a Jesus figure, they radiate more love, you know, in a single lifetime than a million of the cabal who are asleep at the wheel and really, really believe that they are their egos and that they have the right to control the resources for the rest of us. Wow. Can we all aspire to be avatars, Sean? <clears throat> we have to be. That's who we are. That's our nature. That's our, that's our birthright. But it's been like it's been cloaked by incarnation. Incarnation brings four kinds of limitations. The first one is that we've traded a cosmic sense of self for this little ego. The second one is that we've traded a cosmic intelligence for the little laptop that we carry between our ears. The third one is that you know, we have amnesia for who we really are. And the fourth one is that we've created the illusion of time, that we're stuck in time and we need to kind of create solutions uh, in, in a particular period of time. And time is an illusion. It's an important illusion. But it's a construct of human consciousness because our brains are so small that we cannot grok the entire dish stuff. So we have to break it up into bite-sized pieces and process them sequentially. But the truth is we're eternal beings. Every single one of us is an avatar in drag if we're going to take off the robes and see who we really are. As you put it, we're wearing our space suits as we're walking around. By the way, for you listeners, you might have heard uh, Father Sean throw in the word grok as an understanding. That's from Robert Heinlein. And for those of you uh, who have not read his book, Stranger in a Strange Land, it's a a must read. Over to you, Ryan. Okay, so we are doing very well here. Now, in Pledge Drive, things get a little bit loose here. And we're going to run over just a few minutes here because we we are just doing so well. I got a couple of the pieces of business to take care of, and then we'll say goodbye to Father Sean. So, so if you've been enjoying this program, once again, Father Sean's book, Souls on Safari, is available for a $75 donation. If you call down to 895-2233, we've raised $530 so far, which is a great number for this program. Thank you to everybody that's called in. I have an anonymous from Boonville. Thank you so much. She says, love Dr. Miller's show. Uh, here I also have Bill Taylor uh, loves that there's a place for movers and shakers on public radio. Loves what we're doing down here. Also, uh, Pam and Ron Brown. Yes, thank you so much. Especially enjoy Richard Miller's program. They're regular listeners. Here I have another thank you for uh, Taylor um, and uh, from Tamar. Uh, let's see. Loves Dr. Miller's show. And there are so many calls. I'm going to have to step out and actually take a pledge. So here you go, Miller, Richard Miller. I'll give the microphone back to you. The phones are ringing off the hook. So they give are. us a call this at 895-2233. Keep it coming. 707-895-2233. I'm Rich Culbertson now jumping in here just quickly to uh, make sure that all these thank yous have been thank you. Okay, those through. ones been taken care of. Okay, we and we want to thank you, uh, <laughs> Father Sean. You've been a big, uh, big addition to the station today. And yes, uh, we love your work. And, of course, you can get that book, Souls on <laughs> Safari, $75 donation, and you can get uh, uh, Father Sean's book. Any I, last words, uh, uh, Doctor? Well, let's yes, see. I, we have I have a thank couple Thank you before last we go words, to Dr. Gentlemen. Miller. All right, one um, last thank you. Really quickly, uh, Tamar K. Thank you, Tamar. Uh, she says, 
Dr. Uh, Richard Miller's show changes my life every other Tuesday morning. Wonderful. So, there you go. People are getting their f- switches flipped right here on KZY. We're going to have so, way more than 530 on the. Um, yeah. We may even reach our goal here. Well, Fantastic. Yeah, so we'll have Dr. to give Miller? you an update uh, after in the next uh, program. We'll give you the update on the numbers. But. I'm adamant. I still want those to people to call in who just have a buck to call in with, and the buck will be very appreciated because every buck counts in national public radio. Uh, Father Shaw, what I, what, what, I want to thank you uh, mm. uh, profusely for being on the program. 